Okay, we have uh, <clears throat> we've tried to study we try to study together things that are fundamental issues that are that form the basis of Torah thinking and approach to life and practice <coughs> and uh, <coughs> the process that we're going through now and the parshas that we're reading now this time of year, <coughs> we've just come to the point now where the process of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the leaving, the process of going out of the Egyptian experience and bondage, that has come to its completion now. And that process, many of our sources say, teaches the fundamentals. It means that from the process of the exile and the servitude in Mitzrayim in Egypt and the development of the Jewish people, the, the emancipation and exodus, movement towards Sinai, crossing of the sea in between those two points. That's not just a historical process. On the contrary, the, the depth of Torah always is the spiritual voyage. The historical geographical side is really only its lower expression. So let's see if we can try and identify really central features, one particular one I'd like to focus on this evening, that comes out of that process and that development, and see if we can, see if we can understand it. And that is the question of Tchiasamesin, the resurrection of the dead. Now, what does this mean? What is our connection with that world? What's its relevance to us? What's its relevance very, very deep and, and fundamentally misunderstood area. But first of all, let, let's approach it, let's build it formally. If you study the parashas, if you read the sequence of events, you read carefully through the words of the Torah that describe the transition from the Egyptian bondage through to the climax of receiving the Torah, you see that there is an expression of faith that's mentioned three times. Now let's try and focus on this carefully. There are three times that the Torah expresses the concept of emunah. Right? Emunah, what we mistranslate, what's usually mistranslated in English as faith. We've spent time in the past going through the misconception of the English translation. But now let's just, let's phrase it now as fundamentals of Jewish attachment. The word belief is really not appropriate, but Certainly fundamental fundamental issue. For want of a better English word, let's let's call it aspects of faith. Fundamentals of faith. Emuna. The Torah describes the process of Exodus itself, Yetzirah Mitzrayim, going out of Egypt, as a faith event. It says, ha'am, the, the nation believed. You'll remember Moshe Rabbeinu and Moses said that they will not believe me when he was given his charge, his message to go into Egypt and tell the Jewish people that he'd come to, to lead them out. So he said that they would not believe him. And in the end it says, in fact, the, the nation, in fact, did believe. Again, belief is the wrong word, but for now it will do. Most people can't fit in. Can you move forward again so that those people can fit in some? Let's try that again. 
by the leaving of Egypt, it says that the nation believed. So there's a question, there's a, there's a, there's a statement of Emunah that's connected to that process, to the actual leaving of Egypt. <coughs> then later, by the, going, by the splitting of the sea, Kriyas Yamsuf, the tearing apart of the sea, it says again that the nation believed, believed in Hashem, in God, in Moses, Meshavad, and his position. And later, at Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, again it says, use the same expression that the Jewish people believe, whatever the word Emunah should translate as. So, the Ramban and many of our other sources point out that this process teaches three fundamental issues. Actually, the concept of, of a fundamental, the concept of a root, of an Ikah, what we call an Ikah, the thir- 13 fundamentals, Yud Gimel Ikrim, 13, and Ikar in Hebrew means a, means a root or a fundamental, that itself needs, needs thought. Where is the derivation of where, where in Torah do we see really the, the concept of a root? But here you see three times a root being laid down. A fundamental issue is being laid down here three times. And the sources point out that, that these three events, these three events connect to three fundamental aspects of Jewish thought, Jewish belief, Judaism, Torah, and <coughs> they, need, they need thought. What are the three of them? The going out of Egypt teaches what we call the Ikar of Hashgacha. Hashgacha, that means, or sometimes called Hanhaga, that means that, that the Creator, that Hashem is in charge of events, of history. It means that He is in control of all the events that trans- transpire in the world. Try and come back to this and understand it more deeply. Going through the sea teaches the fundamental of his existence, but our version, that means our understanding of his existence, which is that that's all there is, not that he is, but other things also are. But our concept is that he exists and there is nothing else. Now we'll have to come back to this as well. And the third is called Torah Min Hashemayim. That Torah was given to us, the Torah was given to us from a higher world, given to us in this world. That was taught at the third of those events, which was... The giving of the Torah, it doesn't take much to put those two together. So again, we have three fundamental issues. One is, perhaps philosophically, if you put them in order, you would say his existence, which means his supernal and transcendent existence, which is so <coughs> powerful that there is nothing else that exists. Secondly, the fact that his existence is not only the fundamental of all the objects in the world, but also all the events in the world. And thirdly, that this is contained within Torah, which was given at Sinai. Now, let's backtrack for a moment. The first two, giving of the Torah and what that means, I'm not going to discuss this evening. But one of the first two we do need to discuss. His existence, Hashem's existence, God's existence, as the source of the world, has two facets. And the Ramchal, if you look in a number of his works particularly in, in one that deals in a much more technical way with the deeper concepts, more Kabbalistic areas. He spends a long time in the beginning of that work proving, deriving and proving, that it's fundamental and essential to understand that Hashem is the source not only of the world, but of all the events that transpire within it. In the neatest English way we could probably express this, we would say that is the creator and the source of space and of time. In other words, not only is he the source and the essence of the existence of all objects, 
not space and the, those objects that, o- that occupy space, but also the movement of those objects within space through time. Yeah? What we call Metziah Sabwere, that means the existence of Hashem. And secondly, that means that there's nothing else, that He is the master and cause, first cause of all things that exist. But more, but beyond that, that He manipulates, that means that all events that transpire are also an expression of His essence. Let's think through this carefully. First of all, why is this second feature so essential? Right? There's a lo- number of layers here that we need to develop carefully. If you say that He's the source of everything that there is, why do you need to go further and say that He's the source of all events? Surely if He is all that there is, then what space is left, right? What element is left? What conceptual space is left for things to transpire that are not Him? Again, let's try and work it out. <coughs> let's try and clarify. <coughs> when we talk about the first fundamental, that is what we call Metziah Saboire, right? That means the existence of Hashem. The way we phrase that in Jewish teaching, in Jewish expression, we say that is one. We say that is one. The deepest expression of Jewish faith, again, we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hashem is one. God is one. So through the non-Jewish ear, which most of us unfortunately have, that's what we use to listen with, the ears that have been cut in a non-Jewish culture, and the untrained ears that we unfortunately find it difficult to rise above and beyond. We hear that he's one means he's one and not two. Meaning that there's one God as opposed to more. But that's not the Jewish concept at all. That we consider to be extremely basic. We credit an intelligent child with realizing that if he is what we say he is, there could not be more than one. Again, it's a very, very low level. It's a very, it's a ver- very much a beginner's level to when we say that he's one the understanding that there's not more than one of him. Yeah, there could have been two, there could have been three, but there's only one God. We mean something much more fundamental than that. We don't mean that there's one as opposed to two. We mean that there's one as opposed to anything else at all. When we say that Hashem is one, what we mean is that nothing else exists at all, let alone other gods. But nothing at all, that means not you and not me. The way we phrase it, this concept, we phrase Ein Oid Milvado. Ein Oid Milvado. There's nothing besides Him. There's nothing besides Him. There is only His existence. The way the Zohar puts it is Leis Asaponumine. Let Atar Panuimine. There's no place that is free of His permeating existence. Which means there is nothing besides Him. And it appears that you exist. And it appears to you that I exist. Needs discussion. Needs discussion. It's a classic, the grasp of that problem is a classic area of Jewish thinking, and it needs its own discussion tonight, not the time. But however you grasp that, and however you resolve that conflict, or however you define our inability to resolve that conflict <coughs> of our existence or our apparent existence, whichever you'll say, the truth of it is that there's only Him. What we are needs discussion, but what He is, is everything. And therefore, when you say Shema Israel, you say, Listen, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, that God is one. We mean that He's all there is. At the moment you say the word Echad, you should focus on and concentrate on and transcend in uh, the deepest of meditation into the grasp of the fact that there isn't anything else. At that moment you should cease to exist. If you haven't transcended your own existence at that moment, you haven't said Shema. Shema doesn't mean that you assert that there's only one. It's a child's level in philosophy to know that if he's absolute, there can only be one. 
We don't mean that. What we mean to exclude is our existence. In essence. What we're really doing, again it's not directly tonight's subject, what we're really doing is not only grasping that there's only Him. We're transcending from the world of finite particulate pieces into the oneness of His existence. You know that the, <coughs> the word Shema in Hebrew, again it's fundamentally misunderstood, the word Shema people think means here. Shema. You don't have to ask any Hebrew speaker, they'll tell you that the word Shema, Lishma, means to hear. But it's not the root of the word. Shema in Hebrew means to gather together. Shema means to gather together. Right? It says in Tanakh, for example, Vayeshama Shaul et Ha'am. Vayeshama, he gathered the nation together. Shema means gather pieces together. What does it have to do with hearing? I see a few puzzled Hebrew speaking faces. What does it have to do with hearing? <coughs> What it has to do with hearing is, and again it's a subject in its own right, hearing is the process of constructing particular... When you see a thing, all the pieces of the vision are there at once. There's no construction required. When you see something, all the parts are seen at once. It's a fundamental understanding here. When you see a thing, the way the mystics put it is that you see things outside of yourself, not within yourself. A sight that is seen is seen outside of you. It's intact outside of you. There's no construction that's required. It's all there. But when you hear, you hear inside of you. The experience of hearing takes place internally and it's only your construction <coughs> that makes what you hear. When you see a scene, all the elements of the scene are all there at once. They grasp instantaneously. When you hear, the way you hear is that one sound comes into your ear and you haven't heard anything yet. The sound is meaningless. As I mention, as I mention, as I speak out a sentence to you, let alone a, a paragraph or a whole discussion, but even one sentence, as I say the first word, or the first syllable of the first word, that utterance means nothing to you, it's just a sound. But what happens is it goes into the faculty that we call das and it gets stored away, although you haven't understood it yet. Then in the next millisecond, the next syllable comes out of my mouth, it's also meaningless to you. Just another, another sound. And it gets stored away and registered. And then long after that has faded away and its energy no longer exists in the world, you hear the third syllable. And many times you have to hear a long discussion before only then do you begin to reconstruct what... Again, it's very clumsy to have to put this into words. But it's fundamental. The way you hear is only within yourself. It's only at the end of the sentence that you can understand what was being said. But by the time you hear the last part of the last word, the first part of the first word has long since faded into oblivion. Hearing is a construction that you do. You put the pieces together. Now, Shema means to put the pieces together. Sh listen means to construct pieces within you. That's why seeing a thing is not arguing with it. Right? Seeing is believing, we say in English. In Hebrew, in Hebrew we say seeing is believing in the same word. Re'iyah in Hebrew is the same word as Re'ayah, which means a proof. The same, formal, the, the same, the same word in Hebrew for a, a thing that's seen is the word for a proof. There's no way to move. Once you see it that way, but hearing a thing is not a proof at all. Shema means to put together one piece, then the next, then the next, and you construct them. That's why it's so subjective. That's why no two people hear the same, hear the same thing. Shema means construct elements. So when we say Shema Yisrael, right, the unschooled ear thinks that what you're saying is Shema means listen. In other words, the Jewish people, this is important. Now, this you should be listening to. The rest you don't have to listen. This you should listen. <laughs> Obviously, every word of Torah is essential. It's life. It's not, they're not some things that have to be listened. Other things you can let 
Thus, we don't mean shma, pay attention. That's not what we mean. That would imply that there are other things you could pay less attention. Life's not like that. Torah's not like that. When we say shma, we don't mean pay attention. We mean construct the disparate, fragmented elements of the world into a oneness. Shma Yisrael, your job is to put everything together and see that it's one. The word echad, which means one, adds up to thirteen. Not echad is aleph, chet, and dalet. That's thirteen. One, eight, and four. The numerical equivalent of echad. Thirteen is always, always, the message of thirteen is always the concept of elements that look like they are different and broken down, and yet they manifest a oneness. That's why Bar Mitzvah is 13, because the totality of the human being comes together then. For a girl it's the same thing. She has the internal dimension. She reaches that age of 12 because she has an internal construction inherent within her. <coughs> there are 13 fundamentals. The Rambam lists 13 articles of faith. Why 13? Because all 13 are the first one, which is Hashem's existence. That's all there is. The Jewish people are constructed out of 12 tribes. Right? And the father from whom they emanate is the 13th, that mystical center. The Maral explains that any three-dimensional object, the full expression of dimensions in the world, three dimensions, three dimensions is six sides. But six sides, right? three dimensions, each dimension is a two-faceted dimension. There's an up and a down, a left and a right, a forward and a back. So that constructs a six-sided object. In the most perfect geometric sense, it would be a cube. But when the cube is not just six facets, but it's specific, it has twelve lines that bound it. A cube is bounded by twelve lines, what in Kabbalistic thinking is called the Yudbet Kaveh Alachson, the twelve meridia that surround a cube. And the thirteenth is the fact that all twelve are linked and have a, a center that bonds them. Right? One object, thirteen facets. That's why the word Echad, which means one, has thirteen elements that make it up. It's the t- <coughs> The word Ahava in Hebrew adds up to love. The word for love in Hebrew adds up to thirteen. <coughs> <coughs> because the concept of love is that different objects bond into a oneness. That there are 13 things. So when we say Shema, we're saying that we take the broken down elements in the world that are finite and particulate and differentiated and we Shema them, we hear them, meaning we put them together. And then you have Echad. If you look in the Sefer Torah, you'll see that of the Shema and Echad, the ayin is written big, and at the end the dalit is written big. Right? That's interesting. That spells eight. Eight in Hebrew means testimony. It means when you say Shema, you are testifying that is one. What is testimony? When you give a do testimony, you come and say something that is not seen here. It was seen at a distance. But you bring that, you witness, you, you now say that that's the way it is. You bring a vision, yes, into existence where it cannot be seen. That's what a witness does. By saying and constructing, reconstructing, you enable the thing to be seen. It's no accident that aid, which means witness, the same letters reversed spell da, which means no, no inwardly. Right? That's what you're doing with Shema. You bring to conscious knowledge. <coughs> so the concept of Hashem's existence that we understand is that we phrase, we express as the deepest axiom, if you like, of our of our knowledge, is the fact that his existence leaves, there is nothing else, that all the disparate elements of the world are really nothing other than the pieces that make that oneness. Now, a lot more to say about it, but that's the, that's the nucleus of 
the emunah in Metziah Sabari. That means that Hashem exists. Now, let's take the next step. It's absolutely fundamental. It's one of the three cardinal elements, three fundamentals. That not only you see all that there is in the world, but it's all that there is in the events that transpire in the world. Now that needs thought. What's the difference? If he is everything, and there's nothing else besides him, Einod Milvada, there's nothing besides him, what possible place is there in the world for events to transpire that are not him? Are we together? Why do you need to phrase a second fundamental, which is the understanding that events, that history is him as well? So before we go into it, you have to note here that that's fundamental. You have to know that it's part of your belief. It's not good enough to understand that his existence is everything, but to leave history out of it. That means what I do and the events in my life and my free choices and all the events that happen to me and to my people throughout history, maybe yes, maybe not. not those are also his will. There's nothing besides him and what he wants. So first of all, let's dispense with the question of why that's necessary. So the Ramchal says like this, again, this is not the time to go into it fully, but the Ramchal says like this, the reason that it's necessary as a fundamental is because people could come along and say, and I don't have to mention names, but I'm sure you'll rapidly identify who it is that did come along and say, and still does come along and say, that although he is all-encompassing in his existence, and although there is nothing other than him, but he created beings independent of him. Stay with me carefully. He created beings independent of him, namely human beings. And those human beings chose choices that he did not want. And therefore they brought into the world a sequence of events that are other than what he wants. And therefore all things are not him. Meaning, yes it emanates from him. Yes it was all him. And at the beginning when he created everything it was nothing other than him. But since he put free will into it, not, not, let's not get into the problem of free will now. There are a lot of issues here. But taking as an axiom that he put free will into the world, so these human beings, or that human being, or those two human beings who started the whole process, let alone all of us, <coughs> they chose things that he did not want. <coughs> he expressly and explicitly did not want them to do what they did. They broke it down. And the subsequent course of human history has been filled with torture and pain. And has gone against what he wants. Surely those represent things that are outside of his control, his being. How could that be? Because he allowed it. Are we together? So what do you say? You say there's a world in which all the molecules and atoms of that world are him. No problem. But the events in that world are not. The events in that world are the result of free will choices of human beings whom he gave freedom. And they then took events in the direction that he did not want. So all the human strife and suffering and torture and turmoil and chaos in the world. And the whole course of history. From the very first moment it says Adam sinned one hour after being commanded. One hour after being commanded the Medrash says. He was created in a... It says the dust was gathered together and the next hour it was formed into the shape of limbs and in the next hour around midday, it says, his neshama was put into him. One hour later he named all creatures. During the afternoon, one hour later, it says, he met Chava. Chava was brought to him, Eve. One hour after that, it says, the two people met and four people resulted instantaneously. There was no pregnancy in the sense of time duration. One hour after that he was commanded, and one hour after that he sinned, he fell. And then the next hour he was banished. But, or at least that process began. But the point is that one hour after being commanded, he broke down the system. He, did, he brought into the world an event that Hashem did not want. So there was introduced into the process of history something that is other than him. And that's wrong. 
Jewish emunah is, the Torah's emunah, faith is, that all events that transpire in the world are him too. Ah, they appear to be opposite, yes, they appear to be other than what he wants. Just like the world in its space dimension appears to be other than one. But it's wrong, it's not like that. It needs a lot of thought, a lot of questions that this raises, but that's our belief. Now let's go through this slowly and carefully. Going out of Egypt, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, what does that teach? What is the faith of going out of Egypt? What does it teach? That all events in history are controlled by him? That's what it teaches. Jewish people were enslaved, Hashem appeared, and he elevated them, struck the Egyptians, lethal blows, mortal blows, and out of that chaos he took the Jewish people, and delivered them from a power that was mighty. So you see that he controls events. So the fundamental that's laid down in the going out of Egypt is what we call Hashkacha. That is his controlling hand in history. That's one. The second thing is that when they come seven days later to the sea and the sea splits, the splitting of the sea, well, that must teach his existence. If we're putting the three together, we have no, no problem with the third. The giving of the Torah surely teaches that Torah was given in Hashemayim, right? You can't mistake that one. And you can't mistake the fact that in Egypt, events transpired that showed that he was in control. So there's only one left. His existence. His all-pervading essence that leaves nothing else. So there's only one other event where that could have been taught. So the question is, what is the splitting of the sea? What is the splitting of the sea and the drowning of the Egyptians in it and the Jewish people... Crossing the, crossing the sea, yes, in dry land, how does that prove? What's the, what's the intrinsic connection there with Hashem's existence? Absolute existence. That there's nothing else. <coughs> so the, the Gemara says this. It's on, let's, let's. The Gemara says like this, Perik, and Sanhedrin, the Gemara says, Kol Yisrael Yeshleim Chelek This is a chapter, classic source, the classic source for this world and the next. This is the peric, this is the chapter that teaches in Sanhedrin, teaches the concept of the existence of the next world. So the Gemara says like this, all the Jewish people have a share in the next world. We're not going to go here into the question of non-Jews and their share in the next world. The Ramam says they have. This is not the subject of this peric. And it brings a verse that states this. Now listen well. And these are those who have no share in the next world. Again, all Jews have a share in the next world. And these are those who have no share in the next world. Right? Who lose their share, give away their share in the next world. Somebody who says there's no resurrection mentioned in the Torah, that means that the Torah does not discuss and does not posit the resurrection of the dead, and the dead will be restored. Secondly, the Torah was not given from heaven. And thirdly, Apicurus. An Apicurus. Apicurus needs translation as a Greek word. We translate it usually in English as an atheist, let's say. But it's not that needs closer translation. But let's look at these three carefully. What are these three things? Who loses a share in the world to come? So somebody who says, There's no resurrection of the dead written in the Torah. That's one. Two. is someone who, an Apicurus, right? Somebody who 
is this atheist? Gemara says later that this is an individual who denies the, the conducting, controlling hand of Hashem in the world. The word apikaris is a Greek word, but its Hebrew, its Hebrew root is afkara, which means hefker. Hefker means without control, free and ownerless. Right? That the world is, this in philosophy is called the watchmaker theory. That the creator created the world and he wound it up, but then he let it run. Yes, he was the source of existence. And he does pervade every molecule. And nothing could have come into existence without him. But events are out of his control. He wound it up and let it run, he's doing something else. Right? He does not conduct the events of history. So that, we understand, is connected, must be connected with going out of Egypt. Because that teaches that he conducts human history. That must parallel. And secondly, the one who says, Ain Torah min shamayim, that Torah was not given from heaven, that must connect with the giving of the Torah. Can't fail to co- connect those. So we have one left. And the only one left is Tchers HaMesim. Which means, an amazing clue here. Amazing clue that we've been given. That Tchers HaMesim, the resurrection of the dead, has to parallel... It has to parallel the splitting of the sea. Can you see it? Again, this is not advanced calculus, right? This is just setting up three things in parallel. We have three things in parallel. Three fundamental beliefs, three historical events, and three denials. They must be set up in parallel. They're all fundamentals in their respective categories. So far, so good? Going out of Egypt. What is that? That is the hand that directs human events. So you see that that is Hashkacha, that is his controlling... Yeah, that's opposed to the one who says... Who's an Apicurus? He says Hashem does not control things. Things run on their own. Yeah, that's clear. Let's go to the third, the giving of the Torah. So the giving of the Torah as a historical event teaches the fundamental of Torah being given in Hashemayim. Who denies that? The one who says Torah was not given from heaven. That's clear. There's only one left. The third one that's left is the splitting of the sea. What is it... What the splitting of the sea... Who denies that? Who denies the message? One who says that there's no resurrection of the dead. And what fundamental is that denying? What is he denying? Hashem's complete existence. Now that needs a lot of thought. Can you see the problem? It's going to be a long night. (laughs) Let me state the problem clearly. By a process of analysis, not everyone. By a process of analysis... Yes, process of elimination. We have connected the splitting of the sea with the teaching of the resurrection of the dead. And that is the belief. Somehow the resurrection is an essential foundation for the concept of Hashem's all-permeating existence. Why? So let's spend a little while together discussing what resurrection means. What is Tchiyas HaMesim? Tchiyat HaMetim. What does it mean that the dead will arise? And what's it relevant? You know, you may say, well, fine, the dead will arise. What's it going to do with me? At least now. Not now, now. Let's see. Now let's see. Let's go through this. Let's try to acquire here together. Now this is, where, this is where the work has to be put in. Let's try to acquire together a much more authentic, a much deeper and much more mature concept of what this resurrection means. First of all, what is it not? What is it not? What it's not is simply the fact that dead people will be reconstituted. It's this as well, of course. It's this as well. That they'll be reconstituted and climb out of their graves. That's the least... It's true, and the Gemara talks about it, and it's a big discussion about what they will look like, and it's learned from various Torah sources... 
Will they be wearing clothes or not? And that has a source. The Gemara says they will stand up with all their illnesses and injuries and then be healed, just like it was at the giving of the Torah, which was a form of Tchazamaisim. We have a lot of detail about what the resurrection itself will look like. Who exactly will be involved? Which of us will be involved? What the criteria are to be involved there? <coughs> a lot of information. But that's not, that's not the death. Let's try, and, let's, let's, let's try and work together to understand what the death is. One of the most explicit sources for this is one of the later works, one of the later deep works written within the last century, one of the great masters of this area, and he explains as follows. There's a fundamental problem in the history of the world, and that is the fact that if Hashem's existence is what we understand it to be, namely everything, then the events that have transpired throughout history controvert that, they contradict that. As soon as, a, as soon as an error is made, as soon as a sin takes place, and events transpire that are against his explicit wishes and instructions, so there's parts of history, parts of reality. There are parts of reality that are, that are not him, in a deeper sense that are not real. If he is the definition of reality, and you do what you shouldn't do, and that lives in the world, you do it in the world. So you've carved out a space or a time or both that is not him, that's against what he wants. Is it conceivable that he should build a world that fails? Let's understand a bit more deeply. If you analyze human history, that you can show, and our sources do this, that not only has he failed, not only does it appear that he's failed in his project, but he's failed utterly and completely from the beginning. Because not a day has gone by that's fulfilled his will. Not a day in human history. The first day of human existence was ruined within an hour. That brought death to the world. From that moment on, the human being became a vulnerable, dying creature. The human being was created to be eternal, in a garden of, of ecstatic bliss. Ramchal says the purpose of the creation was to give goodness, to give ecstasy. Only he wanted us to have the free will to earn it ourselves. But instead of earning that ecstasy ourselves, and going one hour later into an eternal situation, so we crashed it, we broke it. So the first hour of human history was a failure. Did it get better from then on? Not if you examine history. It's been a history of unspeakable brutality, tremendous suffering, let alone the specter of death that hangs over every human being all the time. Do you know that it's a specter of death that hangs over us that causes all anxiety and all tension? If you could not die, the fear that we feel in the situations where we feel fear would have no teeth. It's the source of all pain. We're dying beings. But let alone, just in practical terms, where has history achieved its golden moments? What were the best times? What were the best times in the history of the world? So in Torah history, <coughs> the best times are, for example, the giving of the Torah. Giving of the Torah. Shem appeared, the Jewish people witnessed that. So the sources point out that there was fickleness, there was infidelity. I mean, at the moment of the giving of the Torah, at the moment of the giving of the Torah, the Jewish people... We're talking at an incredible level, of course. We're not talking at our level. We're talking people who merited to see that more than the highest prophet ever saw. But at their incredible standard, their incredible level, there was, you know, the Gemara puts it, Aluva Kala, 
Aluva kala shezinta bekerev chupata. That means how how um, humiliating is the situation of a bride who conducts herself immorally under her own chuppah. During the moment of her wedding, she's already engaged in an illicit relationship. That was the Jewish people standing at Sinai, meeting Hashem in that incredible moment of man and wife. And in that moment, already there was a, a disloyalty, which led ultimately to the sin, the golden calf, and going through the sea, in that moment of cosmic illumination. <coughs> so there was a Jew who carried an idol with him, it says, no discussion, details. Gemara says that the highest moment in Jewish history was King Solomon's reign. Forty years of peace. As close as you get to Messianic perfection. In fact, Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, the word Shlomo means perfection. The word Shlomo means perfection. Right? Shalem, it means peace. Absolute peace and absolute perfection. The word Shlomo, in fact, right? the word Shlomo, which means so that word in Hebrew, you can rearrange the letters. Not only does it mean peace, and not only does it mean perfection, but you rearrange the letters, it spells Hamashal, which means the analogy, the marshal. Now, the deeper sources say it means that he was down here the mirror of perfection. He was the analogy on earth for the perfect situation. In fact, if you rearrange the letters the other way, it spells Le Moshe. That Shlomo spells Le Moshe, meaning he was the one who the says it was the moon in its fullness those 40 years when he reigned after 15 generations of ascendancy and what was his reign? the Gemara says that the night that he built the temple right, King Solomon was the one who merited after David prepared it he merited to build the first temple so the Gemara says that during the night of the consecration of the first temple there was a problem that led to its destruction what happened was on the night of the dedication <coughs> Of the of the, the main incredible moment, the moment of dedication of the temple, the Beis Hamikdash. So on that night, it says Nasa Bas Paro. He, he married Pharaoh's daughter. King Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter on that night. What he was trying to do in Kabbalistic terms, again, it's not directly to that subject. What he was doing, in fact, was marrying the daughter of that kingdom in Kabbalistic terms. You have to all understand, talking deeper things here. King Solomon was the one who came so close to perfection and saw the world come so close to its perfection that he decided to use the moment to risk a final tikkun. Tikkun means ultimate perfection, wrenching everything back to its source in perfection. And so marrying Pharaoh's daughter, the deep sources say, is what's called the tikkun of the shells of Egypt. What that means is now not time to go into, but it's Mitzrayim, Egypt, is the world of spiritual contamination, that's what it means. Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, Egypt is called Ervat Haaretz, it means the nakedness of the world. In deeper terms, Mitzrayim means the country that constrains Meitzar Yam. You know what Mitzrayim means in Hebrew? Meitzar Yam. It constrains, Meitzar in Hebrew means a strait. It narrows and holds in what's called Yam. Yam in Hebrew means the ocean. It's always a deep Kabbalistic illusion to the infinite world. Right? The reason being that an ocean has no landmarks, it's just wide. Yam in Hebrew is Yudmem. Yudmem is 50. Right? 50 always in Torah is that which transcends. At the 50th day always is beyond number. That's why in Sphira Soema we count 49. We don't count the 50th. The 50th is always that which is beyond number. Mitzrayim, that's the country that closes down the spiritual dimension. It constrains the Yudmem. Right? It holds in the 
It doesn't allow the 50th to express itself. 49 is always what, that which can be measured. The word midah in Hebrew, midah means measurement. That adds up to 49. Mem, dalad, and hay is 49. That which can be measured is the 7 times 7 expressions of measurement in the world. The 50th transcends any measurement. And Egypt is the country that constrains that, doesn't allow that to express itself. So when he married Pharaoh's daughter, there was a radical attempt to elevate, again in deep terms, to bring out the sparks of holiness, these are deep Kabbalistic ideas that are hard for us to grasp. He was trying to bring that out of that world and bring it back to its perfection. In other words, go into the heart of darkness, if you like, exactly there, and bring out the spark of light that remains. When that's done, the darkness collapses. It has no more what's called yanika. It has no more ability to suckle or nurture from the side of Kedusha, the side of holiness, and then it disappears. That's what he was trying to do. But it's a very dangerous game. Very, very dangerous. And the result was that he failed. And the Gemara says at that moment when he married her, Yarad Gabriel Amalach, the, the angel Gabriel, which is the angel of, of Din, that Malach came down the night's Kanebayam and drove a stake into the Mediterranean around which accreted the country of Greece and later Rome, from which came the destruction of the second temple. In other words, on the night of building the first temple was laid down the seeds of the destruction of the second. And that was the most perfect night of history in Jewish terms. So there hasn't been a good day. There hasn't been one good day in, in, in terms that we... And it's been getting worse. It's been getting worse. The Jewish people have been... And our concept is that human history and Jewish history becomes exponentially worse. That, that, that Jewish people have been tortured and, and butchered and bloodied throughout history. <coughs> but the last 200 years have been the worst by far. Because until 200 years ago when Jews were, were tortured and, and, and annihilated for being Jewish, but they, they did it proudly, they went through it. You know that in all previous destructions of Jews in Jewish history, mass destructions of Jews, they were always, Jews were destroyed after being given a choice. Yes, the non-Jewish world, the Catholic world, for example. They didn't destroy Jews wantonly because they were Jews. They destroyed them because they refused to convert. They didn't march on Jews and destroy them just because they were Jews. They tortured them, yes. They institutionalized brutal torture, the most incredibly, creatively brutal torture. In the most psychologically and physically painful fashion. Why? So that under torture they should convert. They weren't interested in killing them. They were interested in saving their souls. They wanted to convert them. And millions of Jews died. But in the last 200 years, unfortunately, the destructions have moved much more into the realm of destroying Jews just because they're Jewish. Not a question of giving choices anymore because it lost our direction. It's not clear that we would make the right choice. And for the first time in Jewish history, from 200 years ago, 150 years ago, there's been a movement of Jews out not under pressure, just because of freedom. And today we reach a situation where the majority of Jews on earth don't even know that it's an issue. If they understand the destruction, in spiritual terms, that's a much more, the blood is running much more freely and much more painfully in spiritual terms than in a generation where Jews were being brutalized and killed and out of that came a Kiddush Hashem. Today Jews are abandoning Judaism without knowing that it's an issue. Not because ideologically they're opposed, but they haven't even known that it's an issue. Among Jews in the Northern Hemisphere, so in America, for example. I mean, this is another time to go into detail, but 
in surveys that have been done recently, they've shown that over 50% of American Jews, over 50%, have no expressed connection with anything Jewish at all. And they were prepared to accept a sports club as Jewish, anything. If it was a Jewish book club, a Jewish sport club, we're not talking about reform or conservative. Talking about anything Jewish. It could be a cookery circle, it could be a, a weightlifting, anything that has a Jewish name. Right? More than 50% of Jews profess no connection to any Jewish identity at all. That means you're talking about lack of Jewish identity, intermarriage, etc. Not because they're ideologically chosen that direction, but without knowing that it's an issue. That means they're choosing a direction that controverts what they are. They have less knowledge of the history than any self-respecting Zulu on the streets of Natal. Do you take any young Italian on the streets of Bensonhurst or someplace in Italy? Or any young Zulu who's semi-literate? There's no question today that he knows more, he has more national sense of identity and even perhaps a little bit of pride than most young Jews today. Most educated young Jews today could tell you a lot about secular culture. Educated Jews, they could tell you about music and culture and drama and art and so forth. They never heard of the Rashbal, they never heard of the Ritual, they couldn't mention one of his works. Couldn't tell you when the Grohl lived. Or the Rambam, or the Ramban or the Ran, or the Rosh, they were stupendous figures. Stupendous figures. The, 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 the art they produced, alone, that alone is spiritual content, surpasses anything that we've seen. And they were perfect in terms of human character, virtue. Whereas most of the people there admire out there who were great in terms of their literature, or their art, etc., were, were broken in human terms, in moral terms. The creativity almost in inverse proportion to the, who they were as as developed human beings. That's not ours. They've never heard of those people. That means they're not even culturally interested. We're not talking about being religious. We're just talking about having a general sense, a cultural identity. Judaism's not enough. It's not worth a national pride. It's not even worth that. By the testimony of every non-Jewish nation on earth, we've produced more than they have. We've been the source of all that they are. We've made the greatest contributions in morality and science and everything you care to name. And we've come to a situation where most Jews don't even know what they were, where they come from. They're not even interested to know. I'm not talking about a philosophical rejection. That would be healthy. There's what to work with. It's not directly our subject tonight. But the point is that it's not being good. It's not being good. It's not getting better. You have to understand in Jewish terms it's a battlefield. So they have their eyes to see this. In Jewish terms, what you, you're standing in the middle of a battlefield. People are being mowed down. Their families are disintegrated. And people's lives are being lost. And literally, not only emotionally and spiritually, in every possible way. And the enemy is not cutting us down. The enemy is on holiday. We're doing it to ourselves. The non-Jewish world is not destroying us in this generation. Virtually nowhere on earth. It's not the non-Jewish world like it has been throughout history. The non-Jewish world right now is not attacking Jews. They're resting up, gathering their strength. That's what they're doing. For the time when a final flicker of something happens and there's a showdown. But right now they don't need to do it to us. We're doing it to ourselves. Now the question that this raises, the question that this raises is what happened to his plan? What happened to his project? 
But he started a project. He wanted something done. He wanted people to live that would bring revelation to what he is. <coughs> that would manifest a world of incredible goodness, bliss and ecstasy, absolute harmony and perfection. And look at us. But look at the world. If you're too sensitive about Jewish history, look at the non-Jewish world. Do you know how people have been butchered this century? The numbers are beyond imagination. Hundreds of thousands of people get killed and it's a line in the newspaper. <coughs> so it's a problem. It's a problem. So where is he? What about his perfection? So let's understand deeply. The answer to this problem, yes, the Jewish answer to this question, the doctrinal and definitive answer needs to be understood, is what we call the resurrection of the dead. Let's understand this well. does not mean, again, it's childish to understand that the resurrection means that people will get up out of their graves and continue. They'll continue where they left off. It'll be nice, it'll be pleasant. Every person sitting under his vine, and you'll take a stroll in the orchard and you'll see a lion and a lamb playing together. And the wolf and the sheep will be gambling around. And they'll be reaping the crops with their swords that are now plowshares. But more or less the same. Probably go for drinks in the evening. That's <laughs> <laughs> not what it means. It's not what Tchesamesi means. It does not mean that. Tchiasamesi means this, that there will come a time, it's fundamental, it's an axiom in Judaism. It's one of the fundamentals, one of the three most important fundamentals that there are. How can, you, how can we not understand this? Tchiasamesi means that everything that has ever died will live the way it should have been. That's what it means. Tchiasamesi doesn't just mean dead bodies will get up and live again. Tchiasamesi means that every moment that died, every moment of history that failed to reveal what it should have, will reveal what it should have. You live again, but correctly. But every moment that dies, understand this, every blade of grass and every grain of dust and every moment of your life that died, because every moment of your life does die, that's what happens. Because your life is a death. Every moment is a transition of a something into a nothing, and it never comes back again. And the older you get, the faster that past goes. And the less it seems to be real. And it's one moment dying after another. And Tchiasamesi means that every moment will come back and be there eternally. And every moment will reveal what it was supposed to reveal. That's what Tchiasamesi means. There's nothing here that's not his will. There's nothing here that's against his will and he failed. Tchiasamesi will reveal that there was nothing other than what he wanted. Your only option that you were given is which way did you choose to manifest that, that's all. Our free will doesn't change the reality. There's no contract. It doesn't say anywhere in the contract that we have the free will to make the thing a success or a failure. It doesn't say that anywhere. Your free will is only which way do you want it to happen? You want it to do through your effort? You want to reveal through the way you live that he's around, you're an aide, you're a witness? You want to reveal that? Or do you want to reveal it through the screams and agonized pain of doing it the other way? That's all. The concept is, you only have three options. You either live the way you're supposed to live, humanly, Jewishly. You live in such a way that when people look at you, they see something higher. If you live that way, then after death, where everybody will die, Gemara says that everybody, even the most perfect and righteous individuals, have the death will be a very, in the messianic age. The death will be what's called a missus neshika. It's only the death of a kiss. It's only an infinitesimally short transition, but everybody has to die. And then there'll be another existence during which every moment, every 
effort that you made, every kind word that was hard to say that you said, will live forever. Every situation in which you took responsibility where you should have, instead of slipping out, where you lived up to what it means to be a man or a woman, instead of letting yourself and letting down the person that you were tempted to let down, that will glow forever. But every second of that will glow forever, because it transitions into a world where there's no time. So a moment of infinity that slipped away and became nothing, that moment will be forever. Can you imagine the compressed ecstasy? That's one option. Option number two is chuva. Chuva means that whatever you've done wrong, and however the past has died, and died agonizingly, and died in... You can bring it back. That's chuva, but you have to do it while you're alive. You can convert. You have to discuss what chuva is. Tonight's again, not the night, but... To go through the laws of chuva. Now you can convert the past and recreate them before it's, before it's too late. And the third option is punishment. You have to know this. It's not... The third option, you have to suffer. Why do you have to suffer? Suffer in this world or the world of souls, let's say. Or thereafter, not going to go now into the timeline of where these things happen. But after this life, there's an immense pain. The pain is nothing other. It's not something that happens to you. It's just you. It's just the damage you've done. The pain of the suffering in the next world is nothing other than the things that you did wrong. That's all. Those things are an agony. They were moments of your life that you could have been Makadesh, you could have raised them to sanctity, but you destroyed them. So you have a lot to answer for. You have to answer for the damage. You have to answer for the half an hour during which you did the damage that you should have been doing right. You didn't do that either. You have to pay for that as well. You have to pay for the negative effect on everybody else and the fact that you brought the whole thing down. To pay for that. That's not a, a, a retribution. That's simply, it's simply that you injured yourself. Yes, so when the anesthetic is removed, you feel the pain, that's all. When the illusion of this world goes, you damaged yourself, you injured yourself. It took your neshama, it took your soul, and you misused it. You used the energy that you had to hurt people's feelings, damage yourself. You might have hurt people's feelings to the extent that you shorten their lives even. Those are big things to answer for. So punishment is not like a childish concept of retribution that you did this, they do that. Our concept of punishment is you simply are aware of who you are, that's all. And all the parts that are gaping wounds that you've caused, those are felt, that's all. But the pain is, of course, a regrowth. The pain is a resensitization. You either grow that sensitivity by working on it and developing it here, or by feeling the pain of its absence. And after that, when that pain has been felt, and it's a recreation of the sensitivity and the wholeness, the shlem is the wholeness of the personality, so then there's an eternal existence. Right? There's an eternal existence where every moment that was felt as a pain has now revealed what it should have been. You either reveal it voluntarily, because you bring it into existence and you show who you are, and you show that you're the chariot of a higher existence. Or you show through the pain right, that's manifest in you, for the whole existence to see what should have been done with that life and that opportunity. That's a sanctification of his name another way. But either way, it has to be sanctified. And then it enters a situation that's called Tchesamesim. Tchesamesim is after the generation, after the, the phase of punishment. Tchesamesim means that all that died, that every moment of a life that is now revealing what it should have been. This thing's not a failure. This thing's not a failure. This project's not a failure. Every moment of this project is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Only you have the free choice which way you manifest it, that's all. <laughs> so you're either going to manifest it correctly and forever reveal that and have the incredible pride of having done that. 
or pay the price of living through the pain of what you caused. But through that pain, manifest the way it should have been. And the reason Tchiyas Amasim is necessary is because this project is a success. But now it doesn't look like a success. So if you're going to say that this project ends here with what we see, so then he's failed. There are parts of him that are missing. He is the essence of reality. He's all there is. So the human events that transpire throughout history, that are not what he wants. So they're against his existence. There's parts of him that are not, that are not real. That's impossible. That's impossible. And therefore the way the system is set up is that there's a phase that's called this world in which the project is given freedom. And all its members, you and me, free to take it whichever way you want. You can do it any way you like. But then there comes a phase that's beyond time. It's not just a transitory thing like this. During which the success of the project is manifest. You can rely on him that his project is going to be successful. We give him credit that if he builds a business enterprise, it's going to work. I give him credit that every detail and every moment and every blade of grass is going to be doing exactly what it is. Only you have a d- dimension of free choice. That's incidentally why the Torah says, we say these things deeply. The Torah says, for example, there's one place where you see this. It says, Behold, I give you today a blessing, life and a blessing, or a curse and death. And then the next verse says, Choose life. So some commentaries say, that doesn't make sense. You say, here you have, a cur- you have life and a blessing or a curse and death. It's completely superfluous to say, choose life and blessing. If you take a child and you say to the child, look, you've got two options. You make it very, very clear. You look into the child's eyes and you say, look, I'm going to make sure you're a success. You're my child. You're my child. I'm going to make sure you're a success. You have two options. Let's do it the sweet way. Yes, let's work together. You do what I want. The way that's good for you. I'm only doing this for you. And we'll get there in harmony and love and perfection. Well, there's another option. And it's going to be painful. It'll be brutal. I'll suffer more than you, but I'll make sure that you suffer to the full extent that you need to bring you to your perfection. I'm not doing this because I'm vindictive. I'm doing this because of my love for you. And I'm going to bring you to your perfection no matter how difficult. Is it necessary to go beyond that and to say to the child, please choose this? You didn't make it clear? So why does Hashem give us those two options and then... But the answer is clear. The answer is clear. People think... People think that those two options... People think that the two options are life and a blessing or utter destruction and, and non-option. Hashem doesn't do that. The Torah doesn't phrase two options, one of which is an option, the other one purports to be, but it is not. Destruction and death and so forth. The Torah doesn't mean that. The Torah means that there are two options. There are two options. You can get to your final perfection through life and a blessing, or you can get to your final perfection through a curse and death. You can get there that way too. Shem is offering two meaningful options. He's not, he's not stacking the dice. He's not saying there's one option, the other thing is a non-option. There are two valid options. And therefore, a person might come along and say, I'll take my chances. Take my chances. You give me two options, I choose to do it this way. And you want to punish me, you punish me. Therefore, Hashem says to you, you can do it that way, but please don't do that. Do it this way. Same endpoint, that's guaranteed. But I want you to do it this way with me and not against me. But you guarantee, whichever way you do it, you'll end up manifesting that which you were supposed to teach. What you were supposed to demonstrate, what you had to teach in the world. That's guaranteed. And that's Chiasamaisa. Let's bring it back to the splitting of the sea. 
I mean, we have to know these things. This is what could be more relevant. What could be every moment that you live through? It's amazing. People think it's, you know, it's uh, down there at the bottom end of the 13 articles of faith. Yeah? Baroiv Chazdo, it says, in Hashem's great kindness, He will resurrect the dead. So you think, oh, marvelous, you know, you'll be sitting on a bench at the side of the cemetery. The ground will shake, you know, the bones will... It's not down the bottom of the list. is that everything that you are and every moment of your existence will be an eternity of reality. That's what it will be. And it will be doing what it had to be doing. There's nothing that's accidental, that's not here, that disappears, that's happenstance, circumstance. Nothing like that. Let's take it back to Kriyas Yamsu of the splitting of the sea and try to understand. You know what the splitting of the sea means? Why is it taught here? What does this have to do with Kriyas Splitting of the sea, the Jewish people go through, the Egyptians are drowned. What does it have to do with the belief in, in the resurrection of the dead? There are many layers here we won't have time this evening to go into. But let's just try to put at le- lay down at least one dimension. Just one dimension. You know what the splitting of the sea represents? When the Jewish people left Egypt, Egypt was not destroyed. Egypt was not destroyed. Egypt was overpowered, that's what happened. But they were alive, they were alive and well. I don't know how well they'd suffered badly during the year. But they were alive, alive enough to mount an incredibly powerful army that pursued the Jewish people to the borders of the sea. Egypt was not destroyed. Egypt represents, again, you have to understand, Egypt is not a country with geographical boundaries and, 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 and political power. Egypt represents, Mitzrayim represents the world of spiritual darkness. The Jewish people were born in that world of spiritual darkness because we are spiritual light. The Torah is called Oraisa, it means the light. That's what it means. Oirata means light. So we were born... The Medrash says that Hashem took us out of Egypt like a farmer puts his hand, the shepherd puts his hand inside the animal and delivers the calf. So when we were delivered from Egypt, Egypt wasn't destroyed. It was overpowered. But it was alive. And when Egypt finally fell, when, the Mitz- when Mitzrayim finally was destroyed, was at the sea. When they were annihilated in the sea, right, and the Torah says, you'll never see them again. Right? You'll never see them again. That was the moment when Egypt was destroyed. At that moment when the world of evil is destroyed, that's when there's a manifestation of Hashem's essence being all that there is. While Egypt, are we together? While, the e- while Egypt is alive, even though they're being overpowered, so when, when the Egyptians are overpowered, and they laid low by one plague after another, and finally the Jewish people against their wishes are taken out, what does it show? That Hashem manipulates events, but it doesn't show that it's everything. There's still a, a, a regime of evil. There's an empire of evil in the world. That's against Him. That's a reality against His. But at the sea, when they were finally annihilated, there was a gilui, a revelation in the world, that there isn't anything else. You know, is this clear? You know, the way you see this most beautifully, just understand the words of Chazal, Words of the Torah, words of the sages. You know, it says that the Jewish people encamped, Hashem told them to go out of Egypt, and camp, it says, opposite Baal Tzephon. Listen carefully to this. The Jewish people were instructed to leave Egypt, and as they moved out into the desert, and they arrived at the sea, they were commanded to encamp opposite Baal Tzephon. Baal Tzephon was an Egyptian idol. Baal Tzephon means the idol of the north. Now, Tzephon in Hebrew means the north, the northern idol. That was a manifestation of Egyptian idolatry. They worshipped that idol. And Hashem commanded the Jewish people to encamp there. 
Tzafon in Hebrew actually means north, but it also means dangerously hidden. Tzafon in Hebrew means hidden and covered. It's always the name given to the, in the spiritual world, the south is the place of light, and the north is the place of darkness or physicality. Mitzafon tipatachara, it says, from the north a nation will come and attack. Final attack will mount on Israel from the north, it says. They were in, uh, commanded to encamp in front of that idol. What happened? So look in the Svarno. Yes, look it up yourself. The Svarno, classic biblical commentator, says like this. Why did Hashem command them to encamp in front of that idol? Because that idol remained standing. When Hashem destroyed Egypt, He destroyed all their idols. Right? When He came into Egypt and the plagues destroyed Egypt, not only were the Egyptians laid low by the plagues, but all the idolatrous effigies, all the idols were destroyed, except that one. That one remains standing. Now, as to say on a deeper level, on a simple level, it means the idols collapsed, they crashed. But we're talking here about Hashem appearing and His world of sanctity, demonstrating that the world of idolatry, of illusory, illusory focus of human <coughs> attention, those things smash. When the sanctity arrives and manifests, those things collapse. But this one did not. So the Swana says like this, the verse says, What is this that we have done that we sent the Jewish people? Egyptians said, What is this that we've done that we sent the Jewish people out? Says the Swana, you know what that question means? Why did we forget to pray to the idol of Baal Tzaphon? What happened? L- listen carefully what happened. Jewish people went out of Egypt. All the idols were destroyed. Baal Tzaphon was still standing. The Jewish people encamped at that idol. The Egyptians saw that that idol was still standing. So they said, oh, he's more powerful than God. You see, God couldn't destroy him. Hashem came into Egypt and destroyed all the idols. But this one he couldn't destroy. Why didn't we pray to him? So they took that as a sign that they were not invincible. That they had a power that the divine presence could not overpower. And they marched against the Jewish people and that's how they were destroyed. So we usually approach that by thinking, why did Hashem do this? Why did Hashem take us out of Egypt in that fashion? So most people think, well, it was a little extra joke, you know, a little spiritual joke that he played on the Egyptians. You know, he left one idol standing, so he lured them into thinking that it had power, and then he could sort of catch them, and they came out, there was destroyed. There's nothing in the Torah that's an aside. There are no details that are asides. Every detail in Torah is, a, is, is, a, is essence. So, we don't carry on too, too long this evening, but let, let's just for a few moments try to focus on what this means. Baal Tzaphon means, that focus, that center of Egyptian idolatry means, uh, again, is dangerously close to modern secular and, and certain non-Jewish and anti-Jewish religions and philosophies without mentioning any names. I'm sure you can put the pieces together yourself. Baal Tzaphon means the teaching that there's a dominion of evil. There's a dimension of evil. And it's a dimension over which Hashem has no control because it's headed by a being or beings that rebelled against Him. Do you remember how we started this discussion? That he gave free will, and the free will was then taken to wrench away a reality that set itself up against him. There was this spiritual being, I'm not going to mention names, no, to reduce this discussion. There was a spiritual being that fell and rebelled. Man, angel, angels, men. And they set up a dimension, yes, in what should have been paradise. That was a carved out space in which evil has dominion. And there are two forces. There's him, there's Hashem, and there's the world of evil, and it has power. 
That's what Baal represents. It represents the philosophy that there's another dominion. You know, our sources teach that it's the letter base. You know, the letter bet in Hebrew, mitzafon it's open on the north. Do you know what that means? The bet in Hebrew, which is the def- definition of the beginning of Torah, is a three-sided letter. It's a three-sided letter. Yes? It's closed on the top, the right, and the bottom. It's open on the north. You know, we always stand facing east. And the left is the north. Right? The open side, the open side of the world, the one that's not protected, that's not closed. <coughs> it's open. He has no control. Hashem has control of the others, but there's one dimension which is the world of evil, and there he has no control. Incidentally, in case you didn't notice, it's why we write from right to left. We begin on the side of Kedush and we move in to conquer the side of darkness, right? But they don't do that. They start in the side of darkness. Why do you think they write from left to right? You know, in Kabbalistic thinking, the north is called small. You know that? What we call right and left. What we call right and left in Hebrew is called south and north. The side of the north, that is the dark side, safun, it means it's hidden and covered. In Kabbalistic thinking, it's called tzad small, the left side. The word small in Hebrew is the same word as the name of the angel of darkness. The angel of destruction and complete oblivion and darkness, right? The Samach Mem is called, we don't even say that name, Samach Mem, etc. Right? The same word in Hebrew, just valid differently. It's the agent of destruction and darkness. That's what the left-hand side is. You look at the bet, it's on the left. That's the north. Sama, you don't say it. So the Egyptians, that was their doctrine. And therefore, what was demonstrated at the sea was the destruction, not just the destruction of the nation and the empire called Egypt, called Mitzrayim, but what was destroyed at the sea and finally drowned and annihilated. You know what being drowned means? Why were they destroyed by water? All the details are significant. You know what being destroyed by water means? It means being dissolved back into the world of their formation. Where did the world come from? From the waters, right? They were unformed void. There was only water. And from that, the dry land emerged. So they were dissolved back into... That's what mikveh is. When a woman goes to mikveh, what is the mikveh? Mikveh is you go back into the world of your unformed essence. When, you, when you're covered in the waters of the mikveh, you're going back into the waters that... Yeah, the waters that were there before the world was formed. There's a dissolution of form entirely and all impurity. It's got answered with cleanliness. And you emerge from the water, there's a splitting of the sea. You emerge from the waters, a new creation. The sources say that a woman and a man who goes to mikveh, the, the, the intent for purity should not be where you go under the water. When you go under the water, the intention should be a dissolution of your essence. The intent for purity should be when you come out of the water. That's when there's a new formation. As you come out of the water is where the dry land has been revealed. That's where formation takes place. So at the splitting of the sea, the world of Egypt, Metzar Yam, that world that constrains the Kedusha, that bounds in and limits Sanctity, transcendence, that was destroyed. And the, the idol that they looked up to, which represents the side of darkness, that, that, that dimension of an independent essence that, that battles, sets itself up against reality, that was wiped out and destroyed. And therefore it was the splitting of the sea. The deeper sources also, they talk about the splitting of the sea as a new creation. Just like the dry land was revealed originally, just like the dry land was revealed originally during the creation, so the sea again 
was a revelation of dry land. It's a very, very, it's not just that the Jews needed to be saved. There was no way to go. There were animals and Egyptians and desert. So the sea split, they walked through the sea. It's much more than that. They didn't walk through the sea. They re-emerged from the world of void in a new formation of the world. A world that demonstrated that there's nothing, else, nothing other in existence than his essence. There's a beautiful, beautiful incident that occurred with Chaim Velozhin. Chaim Velozhin was the great student, the great Talmud of the Gaon of Vilna. And on one occasion, he had very, in those, the Gaon of Vilna had a few students, not many Talmudim, directly knew him, and they had spent very little time with him. They were radically affected for the rest of their lives. They are the pillars on which the Jewish world rests. But, but they didn't have that much contact with him. On one occasion, Chaim, his great student who wrote the famous Nefesh Chaim, he had the opportunity to go into the Gaon of Vilna. So he took his son, Itzela, with him. Little famous, became a famous <coughs> great in his own right. He took Itzela with him. The boy must have been six or seven years old. When he went into the Gaon, he said to the Gaon of Vilna, he used the opportunity to ask his Rebbe. A person has contact with his Rebbe, he should have a list of questions. You don't sit there gaping, you ask him. So he asked the Gaon of Vilna his questions. And one question that he asked the Gaon was, <coughs> amazing question. The Gemara says that when the sea split, right, after the Egyptians were placed inside, it says, the, the, the sea returned to its original strength, to its power, to its might. The sea closed again. It split, and the sea closed to its original might. Comes along the Gemara and says an amazing thing. The word in Hebrew, which means return to its original might, can be read with a play on words, which means to its original condition. Not condition meaning situation. Condition meaning conditional. Meaning that in the original creation, says the Gemara, a condition had been made with the sea that one day it would split. Why the sea is now not the time to go into. But the Gemara there says that when the sea was originally created, originally, when the oceans were created, they were created with a tnai. The tnai was, you may exist like this, on condition that when I require to save my people, you split. So the Gemara says that when the sea split and returned, it returned to its original condition. It had now fulfilled the condition of its creation. Well known, well known statement, well known idea. So Reb Chaim asked the Gaon of Vilna if there was a condition, listen to this beautiful question, if there was a condition made with the ocean when it was formed, that it would one day split, then we should be able to go back in Genesis and see in the description of the creation of the oceans, we should be able to find the condition. Everything's in the Torah. Right? The third aspect of belief is Matan Torah, Torah Min Hashemayim. The aspect is that all of it that we're saying tonight, and all of everything is written in the Torah. So somewhere back in Genesis, somewhere back in the description of the creation of the oceans, should be a mention of the condition, and there isn't any. That was his question. How can the Gemara say, how can the sages say, that the sea returned to its condition that had been made with it, and you go back and you don't find a condition? Where did Hashem say to the ocean, yes, your formation here is conditional? As he asked this question, his little son, he had to picture the scene, this little, little boy, Nitzelet, he jumped up and in Yiddish he, says to his, he said to his Abba, 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 he said, why do you have to ask the Tzadik that? You could have asked me. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine how Abba must have felt. <laughs> The God said, no, 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 let him speak. The God picked him up, picked up this little boy, he put him on a chair, and he said, Nuzog, say. So the child said, the child said this. He said, 
It says in Barashas, it says in Genesis. By the formation of the oceans, what does it say? It says, Yikavu hamayim mitachas, you remember the verse? Yikavu hamayim mitachas l'shamayim al-makom echod, v'seiro'e hayabosho. Let, yeah, Yikavu hamayim, let all the, war, the waters be gathered together. Yikavu in Hebrew means let them be gathered. Same word as mikveh. Mikveh means a gathering of waters. Let all the waters be gathered together. Yes? Let all the waters of the earth be gathered together. El makoim echad, to one place. Let the dry land be revealed. <coughs> Said the little boy, if all the waters were gathered together, obviously the dry land was revealed. Why does it have to mention then again the dry land being revealed? That's referring to the splitting of the sea. They go and kissed him on his head. They said that's exactly where it says. Six years old. <laughs> the Torah has an unnecessary expression. It says, it says, let the waters be gathered. If the waters are all gathered, the dry land is revealed. And let the dry land be revealed. It's not talking about now. It's talking about then when it shall happen. You're talking about the message here. That's what happened between the God and a little child. But we have to understand that the writing in the Torah of the sea being re- split that revealed the dry land, that's written back in Genesis. It means another Genesis. That's what it means. It means he, that Hashem formed in the world a new place for His people to stand. And when the Jewish people became the Jewish people, at which moment? When Egypt... See, can you understand what's happening? When Mitzrayim, when that world of darkness that constrains the world of sanctity, when that is destroyed, in that moment the Jewish people come into their own as being a people. We the people who transcend the mistake that there are things here other than His dominion and His control. That's who we are. Our formation, we take place, our formation is at the very moment of the world that pretends that there's a regime and a dimension that's not his, at the moment that that's destroyed, and that inaccuracy is revealed, and that idol crashes, at that moment there's a new land formed, a new genesis. And that's where the Jewish people become who we are. And therefore we are the nation, we are the people, and our function is to show that it isn't only that the whole world was his and was him, but that the whole world is him. And not only space, but time as well. And it means that every moment that you go through, no matter how bitter and how unspiritual and no matter how failed it seems to be, all that's happening in that moment is one facet of a reality that's being set up that will come back again. And in that moment of Tchir, this moment that died, whichever way it died, spiritually, it died because it was time that passed, died because of the mistake you made, that moment will come back and it will have a Tchir. Not just the dead bodies, but the dead moments of history. And this whole bitter sequence of events that has been one pain after another that will come back into a dimension that has no time where there are no transitions except closer and closer and in that dimension that transcends time so that which was originally manifest as death will be manifest as life